Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. Well, I feel that I need to give you fair warning. This morning's message is going to be about money and hell. So if you want to get up and leave right now, this is the time to do it. Everybody will watch you go out. <laughs> I didn't write it. But it's required of a steward that he be faithful. And God has given us his word. And, uh, and we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to go there. So we're in Luke chapter 16. If you haven't already turned there, please be turning to Luke chapter 16. And we're going to jump right in. Verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that his man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you no longer can be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses." So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So... The master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fall, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And if you have a red leather Bible, you know who spoke those words. These came off the lips of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, as we recognize that you are the final authority, that you are the author of life, You've given us life. You've given us purpose. You've given us hope. You've given us your son, 
You've given us your word, and you've given us opportunity. And I pray, Lord, that we would not squander this opportunity that you've placed before us this morning, but that those of us with ears will hear what the Spirit says to His church. Amen? Now, this is one of those passages that causes all kinds of consternation because it seems unjust that a just God would commend or praise an unjust steward. Now, the challenge, I think, that many of us have when we come to this passage, and let me be frank, every time I come to this passage, I've got to pause, put it in park, and work through this in my head. I've taught it a number of times. You'd think I would have this down, but I stumble over this business of forgiving a crook. That's not the God I think I serve. But there's a couple problems that cause me to stumble, and I hope to clear that up. If any of you have ever had a problem with this passage, maybe we can come to it here and and get through what is really happening here. Um, It was said by R.A. Carson, he's a theologian, he writes a lot, but he has this saying that goes around. You may have heard it in one version or another, but this is what he says. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. What? (laughs) Fundamentally, a text taken out of context can be used, a pretext, to prove whatever you want to prove. I can do all things through Christ if I misquote Him, right? Take a quote of Christ and spin it however you want, and you can come up with whatever outcome it is you desire. But the problem is the context. Since we're talking about money, let me give you a classic. Many of you have heard this. It comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Money is the root of all evil. What did I just do? I took a text out of context, and I misquoted the text. Many of you know, if you've heard that used before, you probably heard somebody say, oh, you left something out, something very important. The proper text verse reads, the love of money is the root of all evil. And I would even go back to read the context, the, as realtors like to say, location, location, location. You know, where is it and what surrounds it, right? It's important. I've got a castle for you, but it's surrounded by slums. You need to know the location. And also, Who's listening to this and what is going on here? This is what Paul was writing when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He would say, 
Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, that is, philogura. Now, you don't care about Greek stuff, but it's important because philogura in the Greek right here is one word, and the word is philo, love, and gura, riches or wealth. It's one word. It's not two words. It's not the love of money. It's the love of money. It's covetousness, avarice, greed. It's a heart that's seeking after self-satisfaction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Having said that, having set that up, let's come back to the parable that Jesus just taught. The parable of the unjust steward. What's the context? Well, I would challenge you that there were no chapters and there were no verses in the original scrolls as they were written that the story starts in the beginning and runs to the end. And you really have to look at the picture of the whole book, this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. And as we've been moving through the gospel, we got to chapter 9, verse 51, pivotal. I told you this back then. I'm sure you've forgotten it by now. I did too till I looked it up. But in Luke 9, chapter 51, something major happens in the gospel. And it says, from this time forward, Christ set His face for Jerusalem. That's important to the context. Everything that follows Luke 9:51 has this pushing the story forward. This compelling Christ, this driving Jesus to finish that work that he came to do on our behalf. To go to the cross to die for our sins, to bury those sins, and to rise again to eternal life. And as he's been journeying now with his face set for the cross, set for Jerusalem, leaving Galilee along the way, we've been seeing different things. Most recently, in the last several weeks, in chapter 14, he was invited to dinner by a Pharisee. And he called out these self-righteous, self-satisfied, greedy, covetous Pharisees 
for their false religion, their false piety, their false popularity, their false hospitality, their false sense of security, their false expectancy, and their false witness. Even though they were the leaders, the religious leaders, they themselves were blind guides leading the blind. Then we move into chapter 15. We did last week. The lost, the found, the rejoicing that goes into that. The lost sheep, the one that the shepherd goes after and leaves the 99 and comes back. And rejoicing breaks out with everybody. And then the lost coin. And it says all the angels in heaven are rejoicing. That which was lost is found. And finally, we just finished the parable of the prodigal the lost son, who wasted, he squandered his father's inheritance on wasteful living, and finally, as he's feeding the pigs, comes to his senses. We have a churchy word for that. We call it repenting. He changed his way of thinking. He recognized the error of his ways and he said, if I could eat, only return to my father's house, I could, I could just eat what the slaves eat. I wish I could eat what the pigs eat. And he does return. And his father is so happy to him to come back, just like the angels in heaven over a coin or the friends of the shepherd for the sheep. He's so happy. He slaughters the fatted calf. They have a big party, and everybody's rejoicing, except the good brother. At least that's how he would describe himself. I've been with you always. I've never done anything wrong. That derelict brother of ours, you throw a party for him. I never got a party. And we see in here this picture of a son restored by a father who loves him and a self-righteous son who is rebuked by a father who loves him. Also, that's so important. Little four-letter word there. Do you see that in verse 1? Then he said to his disciples, he also said to his disciples, I left it out, didn't I? Also, that connects it directly to what he just taught us. So you have to understand, you have to interpret this story of the unjust steward in the same way that you would understand the story of the prodigal son. That's just the way grammar works. They're connected together. Also, another story, same point. Do you remember the point of those other parables? Something was lost, it is found, and there is rejoicing. Hallelujah. Also, like it, including the son who needed correction and rebuke, now he says to his disciples. The audience is a little bit different right here, right now. He's been talking to Pharisees. Then he talked to the multitudes that were just pressing in on him. Just recently in chapter 15, all the sinners and tax collectors were pressing in to hear him, to receive him, to follow him. Now also, he said, 
to his disciples, okay? Those who are his followers, those who have committed their lives to doing what their teacher shows them to do, what Messiah reveals to them. They're committed. You could call us disciples. It's the same idea. So this is specific while the sinners, the tax collectors, and the Pharisees were all hearing the parables of the lost and found and rejoicing, now he's talking to us specifically, kind of putting an edge on everything he's just said. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man, a wealthy man, a man who had need no need, I should say, for anything. And he had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. Just for what it's worth, this word for wasting his goods, squandering his goods, is the same exact word used to describe the prodigal son. They're connected, right? There's all these connections of the two, and so it's going to help us understand. So in this story, like the story of the prodigal son, we have here the master, the rich man. That would be comparable to the father in the story of the prodigal. We have the steward who is wasting things. That would be comparable to the son who asked for his inheritance and then was a prodigal, wasted it all. And then we're also going to have another element in here, those who have had their debts forgiven. So I want to kind of look at how this is all going to play out here. So he called him, verse 2, and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. Fundamentally, he's saying, turn over your books. I, I need to find somebody else to do this job for me. Now this job, this job of stewardship, it's not too different from uh, things that we see in our world today. There may be people, they may be rich people, and they'd like to invest in an enterprise, some kind of ongoing business, and they want to put money there, but they're not going to go to work every day and do that. They're going to let their money work for them, right? But there has to be somebody who manages all of that. That's the steward, okay? He's trusted with the responsibility of earning a profit from the, um, in this case, the farm or the orchards of this rich man. That's his responsibility. That's his job. Now, the way that this would work is that you would hire the steward and you'd say, okay, when the crop comes in, the way that it works in farming, I know with our family back in Nebraska, basically this cut is something like this. The owner who has the dirt, the land, right, they would get about a third of whatever profits come off that field. Now, the person who is renting the farm, working the farm, the farmer who invests the seed, invests the fertilizer, puts all the water on, goes through and cultivates and grows up this crop, he gets about two-thirds. And it's really fair because what does the guy who invests all that money do? Sit around, drink iced tea, wait till the check comes in. Whereas the person doing all the work they're going to get a bigger share of that. And that's the way the steward would have got his profit. Not only in that, but um, he would then be able to go to all the different people that owed a certain percentage of 
the oil that comes off the olive grove or the wheat that comes out of the field, and he could put a little on top for his portion, right? That's how he kind of makes money in the transaction. He's the middleman. That's a term we use quite often, okay? So this is the dynamics that's going on here. But you need to give an account. Turn over your books. I heard that you're cheating me. Verse 3, then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? I'm busted. Oh, got caught. For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. That's my livelihood. I'm going to be broke. I'm kicked to the curb. I'm homeless. I'm destitute. What am I going to do? I cannot dig. I don't know. Apparently, he could not dig, right? But it's like, I don't even want to stoop to menial labor. I'm a steward. And I'm ashamed to beg. How am I going to feed myself? I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. They, you can see as you read forward, are going to be those people from whom he collected the grain and the oil and those kinds of things that somehow he's going to win himself to their good graces. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said at the first, how much do you owe my master? He got the number and he slashed it. Do you think the person who's been forgiven that debt, it's been reduced from, uh, what was this in, in this case, um, 100 measures of oil, and now you only owe 50? Do you think they're happy? Of course they are. Why wouldn't they be, right? They owe just half as much. That's more for them to keep. So he does that. He does that with the wheat, right? He goes through the ledgers, and he fundamentally, it doesn't say this here, but he, he gave up his own whatever he was skimming off the top. He recognized that I'm, I'm not going to have anything. He could go out with a bang and really jack up the rate so he has a little nest egg when he goes out into the world. But that's not what he does. He repents. He changes his way of thinking. He recognizes the error of his ways, that he is unfaithful in his job, and the last act that he wants to do is, if any way I can, try to make it right. So he reduces these debts. Verse 8, this is the punchline. As Jesus is telling this story, we're all going to go, <gasps> So the master commended the unjust steward. Okay, everybody ready? One, two, three. <gasps> okay, try it again. One, two, three. <gasps> okay, a little better. <laughs> The master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. Okay, shrewdly. It's, it's, again, it's a business term. And it just, it, it means that you're taking into account all the factors and you're making a very wise business decision here because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now, this is Jesus as he's given the punchline and the interpretation. The master commended the unjust steward because what he did was an attempt to go out on top, go out on a good note. And he forgives these debts, and it says in verse 9, 
Verse 8 was the punchline. Here's the point that Jesus would say. And I, Jesus speaking, say to you, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fall, they may receive you into an everlasting home. What is Jesus trying to teach us here? Well, let's look at a couple pieces of these things, but he says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves, win people to your side, that they would care about you, that they would care for you. Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. That when, not if, when you fall, they may receive you into an everlasting home. You're just about to get kicked out of the house. Just for a second also think of the prodigal who took all of his father's goods and he left the house and he wasted everything. When he finally comes to his senses, he goes, you know, maybe I could just go back. Maybe I can just get a bite to eat. Maybe I can just be a slave in my father's house. And this unjust steward has done something that will secure himself some kind of a place, a home, a uh, meals, uh, shelter, food, clothing, and shelter, and it says, into an everlasting home. Now, as we see Jesus develop this, it's like many parables, got kind of two points to it. One of them is the temporal, physical, material world that we live in, and it makes sense that if you're going to lose your job, you want to set up what you're going to do next where am I going to live, what am I going to eat, how am I going to get by? So that's that side of it. But in all of these parables, what they are designed is to show us how things on earth can reflect what the heavenly truth is. And here the idea is that you may secure for yourself a mansion, if you will, as Jesus would say, a home in heaven an eternal place. And in doing what the unjust steward did in reducing that amount, even if it cost the rich man, even if it cost the master, he has to say to him, aha, you've been a skunk, you've been a thief, you are unjust, you are unrighteous, you did me dirty. But dude, that was good. At least you're starting to think about something beyond the moment, beyond yourself, beyond your selfishness, your self-satisfaction. You're thinking about something future. And in that, I have to commend you. That is a good thing. Now, again, in parables, there really is only meant to be one basic point. And this is the point, and Jesus draws it out very clearly. Make for yourselves by unrighteous mammon that when you fall, you may receive, be received into an everlasting kingdom. Now, this idea of mammon, okay, it, it goes back to the Old Testament, the Canaanites in the promised land when Israel went to live there with Abraham and then following after that, 
over time with Joshua and all that Israel did in the promised land. The, the, the people that lived in that area at the time, they worshiped all kinds of false gods. One of those gods was a god by the name of Mammon. And Mammon was a job or a god of health, wealth, and prosperity. He was kind of the blab it and grab it god. If you want it, just have positive mental images, put it on your refrigerator, you're going to get it, and you just would focus on getting stuff, covetousness. And as it developed over time, there's no longer in Jesus' day there in the promised land, people worshiping this God of mammon, like literally at their temples with some kind of idol that they bow down to. But they were still worshiping the concept of that God, that idea of pursuing personal gain, wealth and riches. Now, to be sure, in all of this, it's, it's also called in other places in the Scripture, if you have the King Jimmy, filthy lucre, right? It's kind of funny if you've ever worked with money very much. Maybe you've been a cashier or worked at a bank or whatever. You handle a lot of money. Your hands get so dirty. You might not, you might know that. I don't know. Anybody had that experience? I mean, you get, it's like, yuck, you got to go wash your hand because you've been taking people's money all morning. It's like, ew, it's kind of black. It's got a weird greasiness to it. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Well, that's not because money itself is bad that it's called filthy. It's really, and it goes back to what I said earlier, the philogera, the love of money, the lust for wealth and riches and all these types of things. By it, many have pierced themselves through with all kinds of sorrow. And that's what is in play here Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, filthy lucre. It's just money. Money is amoral. Do you know what moral is? Moral is doing things right, or immoral is doing things wrong. Amoral is there is no right or wrong. It just is. Money just is. Money isn't good. Money isn't bad. And in fact, the Bible commends all kinds of wealthy people in the Bible. Abraham, I already mentioned, one of the wealthy people in the Bible. Solomon, who wrote several books in the Bible, one of the wealthiest men on earth. King David, who wrote the Psalms, extremely wealthy. You go down the list. It was even Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man who offered his tomb to Jesus when he was buried. And all these people are commended. God doesn't have a problem with money. God doesn't have a problem with wealth. It's amoral. It's what you do with it or how you feel about it. That love, that lust for money. And this person put aside his lust for money that he might do something for his future. Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, and when you fall, they may receive you into an everlasting home. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus kind of says it this way. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You have to choose. Now, does that mean that I have to take a vow of poverty and get rid of all my goods? Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus started saying, well, you know, don't lie, don't steal, and all these things. Oh, I've kept all those since my youth. And Jesus is very good. It's, all you have to do now is give away your goods and follow me. And the rich young ruler left sad because he didn't want to part with his stuff. What he didn't understand was that if he had taken all that he had and given it to the poor and followed Jesus, he had have riches beyond his wildest imagination. To store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. To pay it forward, to, to send it on ahead. The greatest savings account <laughs> in the world is to take that which God has given you and give it back to God. He is the faithful steward. There's nothing that you give him that he won't bless, multiply, you know, break and spread it abroad. And it says, he who cast his bread on the water shall not go hungry. It always comes back to you, okay? It's the law of giving, the law of tithing, that idea that you take a little bit of what God has given you and you just say, you know what? There's nothing, there's nothing I have that you didn't give me. And in a way to recognize you, acknowledge you, honor you, I'm just going to give back to you my first fruits. Going back to a farming analogy, you understand that when a farmer takes that first crop off the field, that's called the first fruits, the first combine through the field, right? That's, that's the first, and that is to be given to God. And any of you who have seen or been around long enough in a farming community can know that you can get out there and you can be harvesting that barley or, or whatever, and before long, a spark comes off the combine and burns the field up. Or a storm comes by and the hail just beats that stuff down, five minutes it's all gone. And what are you going to do? You've already given to God all your feed, all your food, and all your seed for the next year. It's all gone. And yet, God says in Malachi chapter 3, test me in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and rain down on you more than your barns can hold. It's the only place in the Bible I know where God challenges us, dares us, test me on this, this law of giving. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And I'll tell you, I don't know how it works. I don't, I don't know how it works. I just read an article. The average vehicle being produced today has over 3,000 microchips in it. 
I just saw a thing on TV advertising a little air freshener that has a microchip in it so it can probably dispense the right amount of fragrance at all times and not run out too quick. You didn't know that, did you? I didn't know that. We, there's a lot we don't know. The law of gravity. Can you explain it to me? Maybe one in this room might, but we all know it works. And so does the law of giving. And God says, test me in this. And here, God, Jesus, says, make friends for yourselves by amoral. It's not righteous. It's not unrighteous. It's just mammon. But in this case, even that which it, it's, not, it's not holy, make, your, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fall, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Verse 10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now remember, this is a little bit hard to understand out of context. A teaching on money, a teaching on an unjust steward, and changing the books, and all these kinds of things. But you have to back up. What is the context? Jesus is on His way to the cross. He's going to pay your debt. He's going to pay my debt. He's going to pay it all. And everything that He's going there is to help people understand the good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your Redeemer is here. Rejoice. Follow me. And yet they invite Him to dinner and throw Him under the bus in all of their false religiosity. And yet the multitudes are pressing in, and they want to be by Jesus, and He turns to the sinners and the tax collectors, and the Pharisees get all uppity with Him. Oh, you eat with sinners and tax collectors. He says, man, you are completely missing it, you religious guys. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 just ones. And this is kind of this picture of what Jesus is trying to help us, the parallels between the son, the prodigal who wasted it and came back to his father, and yet the good son, who never did anything wrong, he did everything by the book, he kept perfect ledgers, he did everything by the law, but he didn't have any love for his brother. And that's the problem with the Pharisees. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. And so now he says to the disciples in a more intimate moment, those who are his followers, look, just like I was telling you about seeking and saving that which was lost, you have privilege. You're children of God. You have position. You have possessions. You have within your power the ability to do good or bad. The steward had position. 
He had privilege. He had possessions. He had power. He had it within his ability to do good or bad. In this story, he repented. He chose to do good. He took what God had given him, and then he paid it forward. He used it to bless others. Not selfish, but sacrificially. He gave. This was his nest egg. This was his hope. This was his future. And he says, nope, taking that one off the books. I need to stand before God. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. For it is appointed a man once to die, and then comes the judgment. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We have been given a gift, a great and precious gift. We have the mysteries of God. We have the riches of God. We have the hope of God. We have the glory of God. We have the promises of God. We have the good news. God has given it to us. We are stewards of that good news. So we should squander it on ourselves. Just waste it. Let it rot. Wrong. What should we do? We need to spread that out to others. Pay it ahead. Bless others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, very familiar to many people, uh, in verse, uh, I'll pick up at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 5. Now he, God, who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You are rich. So we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, here on earth, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We know this. Verse 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Should the day come that I'm no longer here and I've moved to my everlasting abode, I'm happy. Verse 9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body and according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we also well are but we are well known to God and i also trust we are well known in your consciousness there's a judgment coming there's an accounting coming give an account for what you've done the rich man says to the steward and we'll all give an account and here we've just read in second corinthians 5 that we will be called to the judgment that is the bema seat it's, it's, a, it's a thing that was common in the culture of Paul's day and Jesus' day, especially in the Greek and Roman communities. In the town square, this is where people would go for judgment. And often, it would be for awards 
and prizes. Maybe there was a game going on and they won a game. They would be called up to the Bema seat where they would receive their crown. They would receive their reward. But also, it's the place where the judges would tell people, you know, you're going to go to jail or something, like they did when Paul came into Philippi and had to, had, had to fix that. There's also a judgment we read about in Revelation chapter 20 at verse 11 called the Great White Throne Judgment, where the books will be opened and we will, ju we will be judged, those who have not confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord, for every thought, word, or deed that we've done. Because these are the people that want to get heaven into heaven on their own strength, on their own righteous, by their own works, by doing enough good stuff that it outweighs the bad stuff. And the reality is those who choose not to receive Jesus Christ, who's paid their debt, those will be consigned to the lake of fire. It was created for Satan and the devils, but he has to do something with the rest of us because we're going to live forever. And you're either going to live in His presence, but if you reject Him and do not want to live eternally with Him, then you're going to have to live separated from Him. And the only other place left for you will be the lake of fire. Okay? So, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also... I'm sorry, let me read that again. <laughs> He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust in much. This is I, one of those things. How many of you, don't, don't say it out loud because we don't want to know. You, you don't want people to know, but in your heart, how many of you said, boy, if I ever won the lottery, man, I, I'd give it all to the church. You're not supposed to say jock out loud. But I, I, I appreciate your honesty, and I've said it more than once. Boy, well, you know, you have to play to win, right? I don't even buy lottery tickets. So that ain't going to happen. But you think these thoughts. Boy, someday when my ship comes in, I'm giving it all to God. I'm just going to, I don't need all that stuff. I can live fine just on this. I'm just going to give it all to God. This is how it really works. This is what Jesus said. If you're faithful in a little you will be faithful in much. What do you got now, and what are you doing with what you've got now? Because if you just add a million to your paycheck, you're going to give the same. And for many people, you're giving this much. And when they're millionaires, they'll give this much. But there's others like the widow. When Jesus was watching, people give their alms, their tithes, their gifts at the temple, and all the wealthy aristocrats would come up and pour their coins into these horns that were made of brass, and they would clink and tangle, and everybody would say, wow, look at all they're giving. And Jesus just leaning against the wall, watching this poor old widow come in. She, clink, dropped in her two mites. And Jesus said, she has given more because she came, gave out of her necessity, out of her need. She really couldn't even afford to do that. It was going to cost her, cost her a meal, cost her something. He said, she's going to be given more. Have you ever read that story 
and thought to yourself, why didn't just Jesus walk up to that woman and say, I know you don't have much, just keep that. Why didn't he do that? Because Jesus knows the law. And the law says that as you sow, so shall ye reap. And he did not want to rip her off from the rewards that were going to come from her sacrifice, from her giving to the Lord. And it's just something that God watches. He knows what's going on. He sees, and this isn't a guilt trip. If you feel guilty, well, then that's on you. Um, But if you don't teach this, people go along and they don't get to know the joy of giving, the blessedness of giving. I said I was going to talk about money and hell today. You're off the hook. I ran out of time. You don't have to hear about hell. We'll save that one for next week. Worship team, come on up. Context. Jesus is sharing. He's been sharing with the Pharisees. He's been sharing with the multitudes. He's been sharing with the tax collectors and the sinners. He's sharing with his disciples. He's trying to help them see these truths. What is true, what is real, what is false, what is not honorable to God, and what we can do with our current circumstances. Everybody sitting in this room has a different set of circumstances. I've got mine, you've got yours. It really doesn't matter what your circumstances are. The question is, what are you doing in them, with them, with what you have? And I I recognize that in, in many cases, by our standards in our culture, by our neighbors, by our friends, by the person sitting down at the other end of the row from you, our, our situations are different. God isn't judging you based on the guy at the other end of the row. He's looking at your heart. Are you an unjust steward striving after riches and wealth and mammon? Or maybe, maybe just this morning, maybe just now, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. Maybe nobody ever opened up the Bible and read this chapter, do you? Because I'll tell you what, it's not one of the fun ones everybody likes to teach. But maybe you're going, hmm. Maybe God is speaking to my heart. And maybe it's not money. Maybe it's your time. How much time are you giving God? How are we robbing you, God? He would say, in your ties. It could be in your time. Maybe God's speaking to you this morning and says, you know what? I just, I'd really like more of you. I'd like to just have you get up a little earlier in the morning and can we just hang out together, talk to each other, pray, read my word. 
Maybe it's a talent, a gift, or a skill that you have. Some of you are noticing that the fellowship's getting fuller. We need more people to greet, more people to watch the parking lot, more people to teach the kids. Maybe there's an opportunity there for you. I don't know. I know what God says to my heart and what I need to do. But the beautiful thing about it is that when you do it, it puts a smile on God's face. The master commended the steward. Good job. You stopped, you paused, you thought about it, and you said, whatever little thing it is that you put in front of me, God, I'll, just, I'll be faithful to do that. I will be faithful in the little. That as you continue to use me, I can see your kingdom grow. We're going to go ahead then and, and stop here. We'll pick that thought up. How's that for a cliffhanger? Hold that thought for the rest of the afternoon. And then when you wake up, hold that thought on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we'll pick it up on Sunday. Can you imagine holding that thought all week long? Imagine what might change in your life. I don't know. I do pray, and I hope you do understand this, that <laughs> anytime any preacher, any pastor gets up, opens up the Word of God, and starts teaching it, that teacher is held to a higher account, a higher judgment. I got I to gotta do this just like you. But what can I say? God is true. And I want all He has for me. So if this is your word to me, God, I receive it. And I'm, I'm going to take it and run with it just like the lost sheep who has been found, just like the lost son who's been restored. I'm going to rejoice that you've taken a moment to speak to me and bring me back home. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. While we are unfaithful, you are always faithful. Help us, Lord, to not only receive your tremendous gift of salvation at an eternally, infinitely high price, help us to receive your forgiveness. Help us to receive your Holy Spirit. Help us to walk in your spirit, to walk in truth, in wisdom, in vision, in hope, in joy. Help us to shine like lights set forth into a dark world that if we have been redeemed, that we would be attractive to others, that more may know the joy of your salvation. I thank you right now for this very moment and this very opportunity, and I pray, Lord, that 
this investment will not return void, but that it will accomplish that which you sent it forth. We pray this according to your powerful, eternal name, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.